Forward Guidance is brought to you by VanEck, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about VanEck ETFs later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. Happy to welcome to Forward Guidance, Brian McCarthy, CEO and founder of MacroLens. Brian, uh, good to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Jack. My pleasure. Brian, you are an investor and analyst who's been doing a lot of work on China. How about you start, where, where do you think the Chinese economy is going and why? So I've been you know, following China really closely for the better part of a little over a decade now. I was at a hedge fund called Emerging Sovereign Group um, back in 2012, and the fund was acquired by the Carlyle Group. And uh, you know, I was the head of macro research. My boss called me into his office. And he said, uh, you know, Carlisle's really into China. We don't really have anything, you know, any China macro product or anything going on. Go to China for a month, come back and, and tell me what you think. And, you know, I was sort of a developed market guy, not an EM guy. So I went to China for a month and I came back and I said, oh, my God, this is the biggest Ponzi scheme I've ever seen. And as you know, it's only orders of magnitude uh, bigger. So there was a always a dynamic um, built into the investment-led growth model that was unsustainable with finally, I think, reached the point where it's become overtly unsustainable. Uh, and, and the problem was that they were, when investment-led growth, when, you know, 20 years ago, uh, when Shanghai was a cow pasture, to, to use an extreme uh, example, any fixed asset investment was high value added. Uh, you know, so like the first airport in a mid-sized city is really high value added. But you know, the, the, the model progressed to the point where they were building the third airport in a medium-sized city and it's and it's empty. So there were a couple problems built into this model. Um, one was that the uh, the malinvestment needed to be rolled. So the system ran on a, almost a universal moral hazard. So it was okay for everybody to fund this malinvestment because the government would always make everything good. So this sort of credibility is what's held this model together and it's starting to fray. The problem is the way they make everything good is simply by having banks you know, a gathering, a rolling loan gathers no loss, right? They just kept rolling the uh, the losses, hiding them on their balance sheet by applying more and more credit to fill in the losses. So you had two problems. One, the, the, the credit that it takes to roll these losses was accumulating. So you needed more and more credit just to keep a certain amount of growth going. But also the investment they were doing was lower value added. So, so this, this thing was always destined to sort of go pear-shaped in an exponential fashion because they're rolling more and more bad assets and the new assets they're creating are lower and lower quality. Now, I, I have to say Xi Jinping basically decided to stop the madness. If he had wanted to push this to where the ultimate extreme is, they would probably still be going. You know, home prices might be up another 30% from where you know, the insane levels they saw two years ago. Um, so, so to an extent, we, we don't really know when this would have broken down on its own because he did decide to stop it. And, you know, I think that's because he saw that, you know, the ultimate end game, uh, was, was not pretty. 
And I think the decision really coalesced around his getting the second term, really solidifying power. And and in his mind, he's the leader for life. There was a no one to kick this can to. So there's no next guy in his mind to take care of the problem. It was going to be on his plate eventually. Again, it was self-evidently unsustainable. Uh, And then the other dimension is everything that's happened geopolitically, from the the Trump tariffs to Xi Jinping seeing what happened to Russia when they ended up on the wrong side of the West and getting cut out of the global financial system, and this sort of great power struggle, uh, sort of a a Cold War situation where both the U.S. and China are trying to make themselves robust to a decoupling so that they have the threat and aren't threatened by that. And that required Xi to stop wasting resources on creating you know, fake GDP to some extent to keep the people fat and happy. Um, so, so he's made a really, I think, a, a definitive decision to you know, get off this unsustainable path and I think that investment-led growth model is done in China. So you think that what China is going to undergo is not just a vanilla recession, but really a a, a structural headwind. I mean, how how big do you think what's going to occur in China is, or you know, what you're seeing is has already started? How do you think what's going on in China compares to you know the the bust of the uh, of Japan? you know, 30 some odd years ago, the 2008 great financial crisis, how would you sort of map this? How, tell us the scale of what, what you see to come. Yeah, I think the scale in terms of the, I mean, two, three, four times larger, orders of magnitude larger. Um, you know, we went a little crazy with subprime mortgages and, and built a lot of stuff that wouldn't have gotten built otherwise for four, five, six years. China has really been doing this for two decades plus. And again, at the beginning, you know, some of these investments made made sense, but it's been, again, in my view, I went there 10 years ago and I said it was abundantly clear to me then that the that, that more bad investment was the only way they were holding up GDP. So uh, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult for them to continue to hold up GDP uh, as investment falls. Now, we're in the very early stages of this story. Um, I think the first thing you need to uh, understand is that 2008 really in the U.S. really can't be the paradigm here because that blew up on us because the counterparty risk and you know sort of credit channels fell apart and we went rapidly into debt deflation. So China can completely prevent that. So all of the credit is allocated through the state-owned banks, the vast majority of it, uh, by central plan. So the government can say, you know, this deadbeat entity is going to get sufficient credit to keep them going. Um, so, so the first place, which is why this thing is so gigantic, because if there were any market mechanisms overseeing these processes, it would have broken down a long time ago. Um, but again, it was all fostered on this sort of this moral hazard. And, and what's happened is all of the risk rolls up to the government uh, and then it ultimately becomes a question of credibility. Um, do people want to hold the liabilities of that government, which is effectively the RMB? So orders of magnitude bigger than anything that went on in the U.S. I think similar to, to Japan, but a lot bigger than that as well. Japan had a price bubble, but they didn't. They didn't have the volume of malinvestment that we've seen in China. Um, you know, just just staggering. There are. 
tens of millions of empty apartments, either on the balance sheet of the developers or having been purchased as speculative units. Um, you know, we're talking 60, 70 you know, million units owned by households sitting empty, another 50 million units owned by developers sitting empty. So, so there was just a massive waste of real resources. Um, so, you know, that's over 100 million units. Sales last year amounted to something like 10 million units. So they could build nothing for 10 years and still have enough housing. So, so there was a massive misallocation of real resources uh, that's going to be reckoned with. Now, to the extent Xi Jinping and those close to him really understand how difficult this is going to be, I don't know. I, really, it's impossible to know. I, I do know he's signaled to the populace that tough times are ahead. Um, I think Xi Jinping and those close to him have much greater faith than I do that he can that, that they can pivot to this sort of uh, move up the value chain um, and and engage in you know homegrown technology um, and and that kind of stuff. Now, there's even if they can pull that off. There's just not the volume of investment. They are going to throw gobs of money at high tech in China. Um, that that's definitely going to happen. Like like we've just seen them do in electric vehicles. Um, so so that's going to happen. But it's just you can't. There's there's not enough technology work happening to throw enough money at that to make up for even a fraction of what's going to going to stop as the real estate bubble unwinds. Uh, there's a lot to unpack because this is a completely different system. So we've seen housing busts in the U.S. We saw Japan. This is orders of magnitude larger. The two um, industries where they really let the private sector do it, do their thing, was tech and property. And they decided they didn't like it in either case, right? So tech has had to be brought into the fold, and they're now part of the team, and they're going to be getting their, you know, the people from the NDRC, the uh, National Development Reform Commission, which is a goofy communist name for the central planners, basically, like they're now in the tech firm. So, you know, they've gone to the tech firms and asked them, like, um, you know, what venture uh, deals have you done? What worked? What didn't? So that the central planners are going to learn how to do venture investment in tech. Um, and then property is the same thing. They let the market run wild in property. Never going to happen again. You're going to end up with I don't know, anywhere six, eight, 12, 15 developers, most of them state-owned, a few big private ones that are very close to the state, like the big tech companies now are, right? The state has their hooks into them. Um, so, th so this is all going to be very, very, very heavily, heavily controlled. The debt deflation process always goes nonlinear at some point because, you know, as asset prices fall, people get reluctant to lend money. Uh, inflation is negative, real rates, you can't lower real rates, people don't want to borrow money, and it's all a self-reinforcing situation. So I do believe there is a non-linearity out there somewhere, but they're going to fight like hell uh, because this is what they do. They, they, they rig markets. We're seeing it at equities. We see it in FX. Um, and all this market rigging is designed to prevent the market from seeking equilibrium. So it's just an unbelievable pressure cooker. So 
the Chinese growth model was investing in real estate from the banking system, not China's central bank, but from banks, the Bank of China, the commercial and industrial bank, all of these giant banks that are state-owned enterprises. Some of them trade on publicly traded markets, but a lot mm -hmm. of the share, in some cases, a majority of the share are owned by the Chinese Communist Party, by the state, and they are directing state credit. This for me, Brian, and I imagine for a lot of viewers, you know, hard to wrap our heads around this, though they are nominally private banks, but they really are controlled by the government. Yeah, and They lent enormous sums to real estate to build property that appreciated in value uh, rapidly. I mean, you can tell us the numbers on uh, you know, just how much your median worker in you know, Shanghai would have to earn to 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 actually buy some of these properties. I mean, tell us, you know, when you were, you know, thirty five years. Yeah, the the nominal you know, example is, uh, oh, you know, when you're in America, when when, when you're, you're driving, taking a taxi cab, and taxi driver tells you about the latest IPO or tech stock, you know, that that is the time to sell. Sell what you know, what is the taxi driver in China talking about? I can't tell you how many times this happened to me more than once. Um, and and this is ten years ago, eight years ago, six years ago. The taxi driver would tell you he owned an extra apartment, at least one, and say, well, why are you going to rent it? And he'd say, no, I'm, I'm you know, saving it for my daughter. My daughter's going to move into it. I'm like, oh, how old's your daughter? Is she getting married? No, she's six. So this is the kind of thing um, that you just, you'd heard all over the place. The bulk of the speculation was people making more money than that, though, um, you know, like local industrial bosses, coal bosses buying dozens and dozens and dozens of apartments, just rampant speculation. Professor Art of A&M, this goes back six or seven years ago, ago. he did a, does this wide uh, spread survey of household finances in China. And it, the number he came up with was 23% of the apartments that had been purchased by households were just sitting empty and they don't rent them. Uh, now, some might not even be furnished. They might be shells, but, um, you know, clearly wide, widespread speculation. But let me bring it back to the banks, because I think there's a really important subtlety about China watching that a lot of people miss, which is people look at things that the Chinese Central Bank, the People's Bank of China, what they do on a day to day basis. And they think about those actions in the framework of how we analyze the Fed or the ECB. And, it, and it's just it's completely incorrect. Because, uh, you know, the, the, think about the Federal Reserve. They manipulate interest rates and, and maybe the quantity of reserves and the assets in the system through, through QE or QT. And because they're trying to incentivize lenders and borrowers to either create more credit because they want to ease or create less credit because they want to tighten. So that's sort of the transmission mechanism ultimately the most powerful transmission mechanism that they're trying to utilize. So they're, they're, they have buttons and levers and they're trying to get more credit creation or less. That's not the PBOC's job in China because the, the, the degree of credit creation is decided by the NBRC. And at the, you know, late in the year, they'll tell ICBC and Bank of China, these are the largest banks in the world, uh, they'll tell them, we want you to make X trillion RMB in loans this year with like, you know, around about this much to go to this industry. And, you know, we want you to keep develop, uh, keep funding the developers who who have uh, 
pre-sold apartments and already blown the money because we need to get those apartments done. Um, we need to keep the steel mills humming. The reason Chinese GDP is holding up is because the factories are still running. Uh, we want to dominate the world in electric vehicles. So make so many loans to that sector, uh, whatever the heck, you know, the central plan might, uh, might envision. So that's done. I mean, you know, I, I think that the management of ICBC basically knows how much money they're going to lend out this year. So then what the heck is the PBOC doing? They're just accommodating it. They're just, they, they just need to, to keep the system liquid enough to accommodate that central plan for lending volume without having the currency fall apart. That's basically the, uh, you know, the magic trick they've been assigned, uh, which, uh, you know, which when the dollar's strong is a really tough trick to pull off. People see things like a cut in required reserve ratios in China. Or, or the Chinese central bank making a lot of loans to banks and injecting mm -hmm. liquidity, and, and they infer that there's some easing going on. But most times there's not, because the, the lending volume and the rates have already been predetermined. The, the PBOC is just responding to something that's happened in the market that says, in order to hit that loan target, the banks need more liquidity, because maybe they don't want to lend to each other. Or there's some pressure in the interbank market, often stemming from banks not wanting to lend to each other. So the, the ICBC, let's say, has to lend, I don't know, 20 trillion RMB, and Bank of China's 18 trillion RMB, and and the the interbank market's breaking down. So they're like, oh, we're, we we need more liquidity. The PBOC will give them more liquidity, but it's not an easing. It's just a response to something that happened in the market, so that they can hit the target that's already been set. So again, it's it's completely different. Where the Fed is trying to motivate the market to change its behavior, the NDRC in China has already told the market what its behavior. They've told the lenders what they're going to lend and the borrowers what what they're going to borrow to great extent. So the PBOC is just a sort of a, a an actor behind the scenes trying to make it all work. Um, you know, again with the constraint that they also are tasked with uh, keep maintaining the currency's value, which can be very very tricky. Right. So in the name of this program, forward, forward Guidance is a tool where the central bank gives hints to the market about its interest rate policy so that it can you know, allow the market to tighten interest rates kind of for, for the, the central bank. What you're referring to is a much stronger policy called window guidance, you know, popular back, back in the day in, in Japan, I believe, and you know, very popular in China, you know, according to you, um, that basically tell, the government and the central bank tells the banks, how much to lend. Although in this case, it is not the People's Bank of China, the PBOC, the Chinese Central Bank, telling the banks how much to lend. It's the government. Somebody above the PBOC is making that decision, actually. Right, right. And so that would be someone telling the ICBC, the Industrial and uh, Commercial Bank of China, how much to lend. And you know, the big four banks, the big, the four biggest banks in the world are all uh, Chinese, and the fifth biggest is J.P. Morgan. Just to yeah. to put that in perspective. And when you say RMB, that's the the Chinese currency, also referred to sometimes as the Chinese yuan. So you're saying that the only way that this can really play out is is Chinese uh, the devaluation of the Chinese currency. The state-owned banks make these loans, whether it's to state-owned enterprises or for property speculation or or loan to the the local government of XYZ province to build the third airport and all this stuff, right? Ultimately, that is funded by the creation of bank deposits. The bank makes a loan and they credit that entity with the deposit. They spend the money and those deposits are in the system. Those deposits are now in excess of $50 trillion. 
um, like oh, nearly three times China's GDP. It's, it's really how almost all of Chinese credit gets funded. Um, you know, we have a very big um, non-bank financing system in the West, whether it's pension funds buying bonds or private credit or whatever. Um, the Chinese corporate bond market is fairly well developed, but the bulk of the bonds are bought by banks. We're now at the point where two thirds of the government bonds issued are purchased by banks. What are they buying it with? They're creating deposits. It's, it's fractional reserve banking, basically. So as long as they have unlimited ability, if there's unlimited, unlimited demand for these deposit liabilities, they can do this forever. It's that simple. Um, now, why do they have capital controls? Because there's not unlimited demand for these liabilities, right? If there was unlimited demand, they would lift the capital controls and everybody would be fine holding this $50 trillion worth of Chinese yuan, right? But obviously, they're not fine holding it, which is why they have to tell people you can't sell those and buy dollars. So, I mean, the, the, the existence of the capital controls is is ipso facto evidence of a, an equal, a, a, a disequilibrium, right? That's why they're there. We all know that. Um, so this is the ultimate tug of war. So they can roll all this debt till kingdom come, uh, as long as the banks can continue to print RMB liabilities, create those liabilities at 10 to 12% a year or more. So these are big numbers now compounding at double digit rates. Uh, as long as they can continue to do that, that this can this can go on forever. Um, so, you know, again, it, it ultimately it does all come down to they're relying on uh, their ability to force their citizenship to hold these liabilities. And, and I think that to me, the interesting thing about the property bust is when property was going up 10, 15 percent a year. Oh, all the, you know, it was like any bubble. There were like narratives to explain it, right? It was urbanization. Um, it, you know, people just ignored the fact that the population just had stopped growing. But, you know, it was going to be urbanization and, and it, everything had a circularity to it, right? The strength and savings rate. Yeah. So they were investing. Rate, uh, uh, the high trade surplus. Yeah. The savings rate is sort of a forced function of, of, of the way the system is built. Um, but because again, somebody has to hold this $50 trillion in, in M2 deposits they've created, right? And uh, via various trade barriers, they force the foreign sector into surplus. They run trade surpluses. Uh, it, so the foreign sector is in deficit. We're in deficit with them. Um, the, the corporate sector is in deficit, they're borrowing. The government sector is in deficit, they're borrowing. The entire surplus has to, the other side of all those deficits has to rest with households. It's just the accounting identity. Um, so, you know, they force the foreign um, sector to be in deficit by, you know, all kinds of trade barriers on import of, of goods. China's in surplus, the external sector's in deficit. So they do that by... Um, Trade barriers on both sides, right? They subsidize their exports, as again, as a, you know, the EV uh, thing is in the press. They've thrown oodles of money at, at electronic vehicles. Um, there was a FT article today debating this. It said it was like 
uh, immensely wasteful, but spectacularly successful or something. Well, I, I, you know, we don't know how much money they wasted, right? We, we, it's, it, it, you can look at it as spectacularly successful because they're going to dominate the world in EVs if you don't calculate the ROI. We have no idea what the ROI is. We don't really know how much money they've wasted. But yes, if you throw a gazillion dollars at an industry, you can build a global leader. So they, they force the, the external sector into deficit. Um, and and they, they help the, the household sector. They facilitate the surplus there, um, you know, with the, with the weak social safety net, artificially suppressed uh, interest rates um, and, you know, returns on your savings and, and the like. So, um, you know, the households are stuck with all these liabilities. Part of the reason you had a housing bubble was because there's really nothing else to do with the money. What about the stock market? Yeah, the equity market's gone nowhere for two decades. Despite all this GDP growth, you know, the stock indices have gone nowhere. Now there's been dividends and, and you know, there's been a total return. Um, but, you know, the, the, the indices have gone nowhere and they've, they've grossly underperformed the rest of the world, despite China's really high GDP rate. Um, so to me, that's pretty strong evidence that their GDP is fake to some extent because it's it's they're just measuring. You can have great GDP if you if you borrow if you have a state-owned banks make a loan for ten trillion dollars and spend it on digging holes and filling them in again. You you got to have ten percent GDP next year, right? Um, the problem is everybody would see that, you know, the money you're printing is going to end up not being any good. So back to the housing bubble real quick. Like when housing was going up, A, there was something to do with this money. And B, people could sort of convince themselves that this is, you know, the genius of this Chinese Communist Party. They've, they've figured out this great, you know, growth machine. Um, and it all sort of made sense. You, it, it seemed justified when the housing prices were going up. And we're going to cut housing prices in China by half, at least. At least, it's probably already 25, 30%. You know, sales already in January are down precipitously. You're going to cut this asset. You're going to cut this possibly $100 trillion asset market in half. And, and then I think people are going to look at these liabilities they hold in the form of Chinese bank deposits and say, well, if all these assets just fell by half in value, what the hell is on the other side of the balance sheet? What is backing these liabilities I'm holding? It's a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> so, so, you know, increasingly people want to diversify. And, um, you know, there was another article in the FT over the weekend about uh, outsized buying of, of gold from China. It's, I, I think, I think 60 something billion. It's like not huge amounts. There's just, they'll buy anything they can access, but there's only so much gold they can get their hands on. Um, are Chinese uh, people bidding up Bitcoin through whatever means possible, VPNs? Or I would imagine, I would imagine, because if I was in China and I had a lot of wealth, I would want it in anything but RMB right now. So, you know, we're seeing that dynamic. Uh, and I think it's it's only going to get worse. Like gold did, Bitcoin is establishing itself as a macro asset that potentially helps hedge against the government devaluation of your money. Finally, you can easily access Bitcoin in a low-cost ETF 
with the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. Search the ticker HODL in your brokerage app today. Visit vanek.com slash HODLFG to learn more. That's vanek.com slash HODLFG. Now the disclosures. Investing involves risk and you could lose money on an investment in the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, also known as the Trust or HODL. The value of Bitcoin and therefore the value of the trust shares could decline rapidly, including to zero. You could lose your entire principal investment. For a more complete discussion of the risk factors relative to the trust, carefully read the prospectus link below. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. I just want to say, you know, folks have been saying this about the Chinese real estate market. I mean, you know, no doubt you have been pointing these structural weaknesses in the Chinese economy for uh, a long time. But is it fair to say, Brian, that a lot of what you're saying based now is not theoretical? It's based on actual statistics. Like at last, this is finally coming to pass. So let, let's let you put this uh, uh, chart up from 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 you and your your work at at Macro Lens. You can see that in 2020 and 2021 investment in Chinese real estate started to actually fall. Not just the growth rate went down, but it actually started to, to contract, which is pretty rare in finance to, yeah. to have an outright series contract. Meanwhile, manufacturing and infrastructure have risen uh, um, you know, above trend, at least when it comes to manufacturing. So part of this is, uh, is Xi Jinping, the leader of China, his willingness uh, to move away from basically a real estate bubble uh, 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 um, a growth model Towards oh let's actually produce electric vehicles and let's produce you know let's create create, uh, create stuff basically not have it just be so you know so dependent on on real estate a corollary of that though is that sales uh, as you can see in the red line here have have collapsed so tell us about the correlation between real estate sales between uh, uh, in the red to real estate under construction which is in the blue and real estate under construction the blue line that factors heavily into GDP so when you say that you think that you know, there will be a severe Chinese recession and you know, five trillion, maybe tens of trillions of dollars will be lost. T- take us how you how you get there. The, the this time is different factor is that the property bubble is burst. It's 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 fallen and it ain't getting up. I mean, that's my contention. And I, I've been saying this for over a year now. And I think one of the things investors keep looking for them to to reflate that asset. And I think it's just not happening. I, th- I think sentiment is broken in that market now. So, so this is different from any down cycle we've seen since we've all been watching China. I mean, even in 2008, they pumped credit and they reanimated the property market. So if that's not on the menu, then we are definitely in a different experience than any of us have seen in this sort of Chinese growth cycle the last couple of decades. But to talk through the charts, we're in the very early innings of it um, because with, you know, it was eight, 8% and change real estate investment is down, but it's going to get much worse Um because you know the blue line in these two charts is floor space under construction, so sales started collapsing a little over two years ago, and you know floor space lags that because what the way it turns out, the chart on the uh, bottom right there is just the four year sum of sales in red and floor space under construction in blue, so the volume of construction is basically four years of sales tallied up. Now, the years three and four of those sales were not bad. Like four years ago, sales were booming, right? So so they're just completing those apartments now. And the fact that sales have collapsed the last two years is only going to start to really heavily influence this construction variable next year and the year after. So you, you can almost pencil in with certainty three years of sharp decline in 
in the, the degree of real estate construction activity. They've been able to make up with it, make up for it by sharp increases in manufacturing uh, FAI, that's fixed asset investment, um, which is only going to exacerbate this their trade surpluses. And I think the rest of the world now can see that, oh my gosh, to some extent, China is going to make up for the lack of investment in re- real estate by investing in excess, excess capacity, like even more excess capacity. Like, do we need like more Chinese steel mills and, you know, cement and EVs? No, we don't. We don't. Um, But, you know, this is all they have. So this is what they're going to rely on. Um, And and they actually were able to pump up infrastructure in 2023, despite the fact that 30 to 40 percent of local government revenues are the sale of land to property developers, which is completely dried up. Um, so the infrastructure is going to be more difficult to fund. And, and beyond that, uh, as is, as is very common in, in this system of governance, the leadership tells local authorities to do two things that are completely diametrically opposed. So it's like, you know, we want to hit a, I think they're going to say four and a half percent growth this year. The market's looking for another 5%. 5% would be stupid. I I don't think they're stupid, but who knows? They're going to say four and a half or five, and they're going to tell these local governments, you know, you need to keep up the infrastructure so we can hit this growth. Oh, at the same time, you know, clean up these local government financing vehicles that are riddled with bad debt, control your borrowing, and don't have any debt risks. So these guys are damned if they do, damned if they don't. They actually it's want like we to- want you to have short hair, but you're not allowed to have a haircut. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They actually went to 12 provinces, like you know, in the last several weeks, and it started sort of shutting down infrastructure projects that were, you know, a waste of money because they don't they they know these these provinces have debt problems. So I've seen you know Xi Jinping like they do this with the currency all the time too. It's like PBOC, you know, make sure that no debts blow up. So keep the system sufficiently liquid and keep the currency stable. So they do whatever they can. They shut down the FX market. Uh, at some point, uh, that'll cause a problem that they'll have to fix too. <laughs> the infrastructure, I think, is going to be very hard to sustain, given that they seem um, pretty clearly and legitimately to want to control debt risk at the local government level as well. And so they're increasing the central government deficit. They borrowed an extra one trillion RMB late last year and gave it to the localities. Um, But they've never shown any willingness to really pony up that central government balance sheet um, in any way that would. It's really the last the last balance sheet. And people argue that, well, China only has central government debt to GDP of 23 percent. So, you know, they can always you know, wipe, you know, roll all this stuff onto the central government balance sheet and like take care of it. Uh, There's two problems with that. Um, One is that everybody's always assumed that these bank deposits are government guaranteed. Everybody's always assumed that these local government debts are pretty much government guaranteed. I mean, they, they trade at some spreads because there's some risk they might let one go. But if they ever let one go, I mean, we've seen this with Baosheng Bank, right? They try to let something go and it becomes immediately apparent that, oh, well, every other bank in the system is going to blow up if you let one go. So they say, oh, we won't do that again. We promise. So maybe they'll let an LGFE go, uh, a local government financing vehicle, but then no LGFE in the country will be able to raise a nickel and they'll say, oh, you know what? It's all guaranteed. So, so, so this 
this clean central government balance sheet is a complete myth in my my view because it's it's all one balance sheet secondly even if they even if they had capacity if if you if you thought they had capacity to do one more cleanup all right we can clean up all these crappy loans one more time okay let's give them one more time like then what how are we growing out of this are you going to do it again and and go back to investment led growth it seems not and i don't think the market would finance that again so let's say they the central government says we'll take care of all of it okay how are you going to pay me back and xi jinping's answer is this uh homegrown technology we're you know we're going to we're going to take over the semiconductor business or you know uh you know they've done it with evs they still can't build an airplane though and that's been a decade plus um, I, I mean, I shouldn't say that they're, they're making some progress there, but I don't think, you know, uh, not Chinese, not Chinese, uh, airlines are going to want to fly them. So can a centrally planned system move up the value chain? Um, almost by definition, no, right. Almost by definition, they're like the, the system is, can only copy, right. If you don't have entrepreneurship, you can sort of only copy. So I'm I'm very skeptical on the efficacy of central planning. It's very good at, you know, saying we want to build 87 bridges regardless of what the ROI is. That's easy, right? Um, but actually, you know, pulling off this Xi Jinping plan of competing in higher value added uh, and even some higher tech spaces, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fund China. On, on that pitch. Well, there are some remarkable technologies in China, in which I would say China may be even ahead of the US and the West, particularly when it comes to uh, smartphones and you know using financing, getting loans and paying people. Like, you know, in America, we think we're so high tech because we have Venmo, but China is, you know, they've got Venmo plus, plus, plus. Uh, likewise, when it comes to TikTok, I mean, Instagram's good, but uh, TikTok is better. I don't, I don't use TikTok, by the way. So there are some some examples of where Chinese is ahead. But you're right; they they do tend to copy and 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 take and you know take a lot of technology without respect to intellectual property, which, by the way, America did a ton of when it was the the rising power, uh, you know, in you know, late 1800s. Yeah, I just I don't want to downplay that that China has some great technology companies and has done some great things. Um, uh, you know, it's been a big round trip in a lot of those stocks. But I, if you were going to buy anything in China, that is where you would look. I think there's, you know, you, you could make a case that there's some value there and there's some great companies. I don't want to downplay that, you know, the achievements that they, that, that, you know, we've seen from China in the last 10 or 15 years. It's just macroeconomically, it doesn't add up to much compared to the amount of steel and cement that's wasted in, in just building stuff, basically. To your point, I, I think taking central planning to the next level, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. That makes sense. So, Bryce, let's just take a quick detour to talk about the stock market, which uh, has been collapsing, the Chinese stock market, I, I should say. Uh, so you've been short the Chinese market for a while. Tell us, tell us uh, why, because just because it, you know, an economy is going to weak, it doesn't necessarily mean the stock market is going to be weak. And, and vice versa. Uh, clearly, that's worked out. Uh, are you looking to cover your short now that it's down so much? And then also, can we draw a distinction between, number one, those local small cap companies that uh, are having lots of issues versus those big cap tech companies? And number two, 
uh, versus the, the Chinese uh, state-owned owned banks. Like, for example, what do you think about shorting Chinese bank stocks versus short, you know, versus being long Chinese tech stocks, something like that? Right. So the bear case on Chinese equities has been predicated on, for one, I, I, you know, I, I talk to a lot of investors with really deep pockets day in, day out. And I could just never really get my client base to be nearly as bearish as I was <laughs> throughout this thing. Um, so there, there was, you know, I think at least until very recently, there was what I all along thought was a, a misplaced hope in, in a reversion to stimulus. Um, so people thought Xi Jinping's not going to be able to take the pain and, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party sort of promised growth. And I, I just, again, I don't think he really, uh, I don't think Xi Jinping really is as worried about that as some others. Um, a gradual slowdown in growth, people are unhappy. I think he, he feels he can handle that. Going right back to the reopening, uh, which was, so we had the huge reopening trade in early 2023, late 2022. Um, I pooed that for the very simple reason that they didn't really close down. Uh, the way people thought. So industrial production had a blip in 2020, and then it got right back on plan. So even when Shanghai was closed, the factories were running. They had the poor bastards sleeping in tents and sleeping bags on the factory floor. So, so, so it was never shut down the way people thought. The consumer economy what was, you know, you couldn't go to the store to buy stuff, which in America is a big percentage of the economy. But in China, the factory factories are a big percentage. And that was that was open. Exactly. So the industrial side wasn't shut down. Now, consumers did come back and, and they spent some money. But I, I thought that was not going to be what people thought either, because this is an economy in debt deflation. I mean, like, I think that the, while, while the analogy is not perfect, it's more Japan than the U.S. because they can't ease. So, so I, my, my thesis has been the property market's broken and it's not coming back. That became apparent to me like 18 months ago. Um, and I think people are now coming around to that view. Um, the fact that they can't or won't ease, I'm not sure the market's fully absorbed that. You still got rates at like two and a quarter percent um, in, you know, two to two and a quarter percent, call it in the short end in China. Um, why is that? Why don't they go to zero? Because it'll exacerbate the 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 fact that nobody wants to hold these liabilities, the fifty trillion dollars of of bank deposits. You know, at least you can get a percent and a half as a household. What happens if they put that at zero? Hey, that'll piss people off um, uh, because it's you know going to be viewed as more financial repression. But it's just going to increase the pressure on the currency. So it, it's sort of a really telling data point that they still have rates above two percent despite what's going on. You know, and if if this was 08, we we already had rates at zero, and we're look, you know, trying to figure out how QE worked at this point in the story. So they're in debt deflation. If the property market doesn't come back, it only gets worse. They can't really ease, so they can't drop those deposit rates, and then the bank margins are stuck, so the banks can't really drop lending rates. Um, and I, I think it's just impossible to exit a debt deflation like this without a currency devaluation because they can't, like if you wipe the real estate assets out in half, the national balance sheet has a huge hole in it. And then, and then, and then you get the slowdown in activity and, and you know, then the infrastructure starts to slow as GDP slows, 
all of this debt on the local government level looks more unsustainable. Uh, by the way, even if they do real GDP at four and a half or five this year, nominal might be three because they're in deep deflation. Uh, you know, we're, we're well over a year of PPI minus three, minus five. Um, so, so pretty deep deflation. So in terms of debt dynamics, it's the nominal GDP that matters, not the real. Um, and, and so the, the, debt, uh, the debt math only gets worse in this debt deflation scenario. And the only way you can reset the system is to reflate and inflate away some of this debt. And you just, you're not going to do that at a fixed exchange rate against a, what is currently a sort of a strong dollar. So they're stuck. And as bearish as I am on the currency, like this ends at some point in a deep devaluation. I don't think it's going to be soon because they realize down that, they're like that road's really, really scary for them. They tried that in 2015, 2016. Delinking from the dollar was the right thing to do then, but it had already been, it was already too late. They were, there was already too much pressure in this disequilibrium pressure cooker that they started to release it and it was going to be a nuclear bomb and the pressures orders of magnitudes worse now. So they're sort of stuck uh, heavily, heavily managing this currency and, you know, they don't do it with intervention because they don't have the dollars to spare anymore. They can't be providing dollar liquidity to the market. It'll just take everything they offer. So they literally shut down the FX market. They tell people, you want to buy dollars? We don't have any this week. Come back next week and we'll see if we can help you out. Um, so so it's, 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 this is going to really cramp China Inc., which is you know, the, the largest uh, trading nation in the world in terms of gross trade flows. So they're, they're impairing the, the domestic economy's access to foreign exchange. It's the only way they can really defend the currency. Um, you know, they're avoiding going to zero rates. They can't hike rates. So they're like stuck. Um, now, they could, they could do something crazy to pump the equity market up 15 or 20 percent, which is, which is the problem with the trade at this point, because the short's done great. The risk reward's not so great anymore uh, because they could come in. And uh, so here's what they could do. They could say, we're going we're gonna to borrow Five trillion RMB or a trillion dollars, seven trillion RMB or something crazy. Um, you know, we're going to have the PBOC effectively lend that money or print that money by making loan to some central entity, uh, central WeGen or the CIC or some uh, you know wealth fund new vehicle they set up, whatever, and it's going to buy a, buy you know trillions of RMB worth of stock to prop up the market. Which in the short term would have could have a great effect from very oversold levels. Of course, whatever shares they don't buy end up being worth less because now the Chinese government is even more involved in everything. Um, so, so you know, I think everybody knows it's sort of self defeating, um, and it didn't really work all that well in 2015. They did something similar. So I don't think they're going to drop that bomb on me. I'm still short as we speak, but I'm generally a little more nervous than I've been for sure. Um, but I just, again, I, I think the story doesn't turn around in a structural sense unless they're ready to devalue the currency. And there's absolutely no sign of that. So they're, they're really stuck. And then, and then there's, there's all kinds of external risks. <clears throat> I'm, I'm in the camp that the Fed's overcooked it. 
Um, and we're going to have, you know, maybe this New York community bank things are another canary in the coal mine. Uh, if the U.S. economy slows, we could see credit events pretty quickly and a, and a sharp dollar rally. China's screwed if that happens. Like that would that through the through the exchange rate link, that would transmit a monetary policy tightening to them that would be completely un, uh, unmanageable. So they'd probably have to allow some movement in the currency. It could get very, very messy. And then the other big risk is is Trump, of course. I I have no idea how serious he is. He's, you know, he's there's always a lot of bluster there for sure. Um, I thought at the time that the phase one trade deal he did in 2019 was just a punting exercise. Um, my my reading of the dynamic there said like China said like, all right, we've had enough. You know, you twist my arm one more increment and we're going to the mattresses. You know, you want to have a, a real, you know, global trade war. Let's see. Let's see how that works for you into an election year. And he did the phase one trade deal. Now, my hunch is in the second term, he was going to come back to slapping China around. But that I, I have who knows. Right. Isn't the Biden administration currently a lot more uh, hawkish on China by I mean, trade policy imposing tariffs than the pre-Trump bipartisan consensus with regards to China was just, you know, open trade. Yeah, I think they're sort of faux hawkish. Um, okay. Now, I'm, I'm fascinated to see what Joe Biden says about the tariffs on China in a debate, because they're still there. <laughs> you know, so to your point, uh, it was just it's been politically untenable to reverse those tariffs, despite the fact that we had a double-digit inflation episode. I mean, if they were ever going to do it, right? If they were ever going to do it, it's like, oh, well, we have to do this to help domestic consumers. Uh, we don't, I don't want it to help China, but we have 9% inflation. And even then they couldn't do it. So I think what's actually happened is he's more hawkish than the bipartisan consensus was previously because the bipartisan mm. consensus is, is, is more hawkish. Yeah, I, I agree yeah, the politics are just demanding something here. I'm not deep into the weeds in the semiconductor industry, but I, these 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 controls have more loopholes than you can shake a stick at. I mean, you know, we saw the ASML, the Dutch um, uh, machinery company, still selling a lot of machinery to China. Uh, the Dutch are debating whether they should shut that down. Um, it just, you know... I think that's there's they're not completely insignificant, but I think there's a fair amount of bark with the bite when it comes to those controls. Um, and, you know, in other aspects of the relationship, Biden's really pressing for a detente. Uh, you know, China's going to cooperate on fentanyl. Climate. It's all it's always been baloney. So I, I don't know why we would believe them now. They have no credibility to say they're going to cooperate on anything. And and one thing that sort of irks me, uh, one of my pet peeves, we talk about bipartisan consensus and, and, and the approach to China and how the tone has changed. Nonetheless, the phase one trade deal, which I hated, okay, if phase one trade deal, the construction was we can't change China's central planning behavior. So we're going to balance it by presenting them a centrally developed list of stuff they need to buy from us. Um, which is the only way the global system can manage having China at the center of it. So if China is a centrally planned co economy and they're at the center of global trade, then 
it, it just doesn't work. The market economies can't compete. They'll have to move towards central planning, which is I heard, maybe been a brilliant plan of China's all along. But so phase one was, I thought, a terrible deal because, it, it again, it was matching their central plan with one of our own. But the only thing we got from China, the only thing we got there was the list was measurable. They're going to buy X billions of dollars worth of soybeans by this date. And they didn't do it. And the date came and went. And the U.S. trade rep and the Biden administration said nothing. So what happened there? I, I don't I don't like I don't recall the stories in the Washington Post and the New York Times or Fox News or the Wall Street Journal or anywhere where else saying, hey, what's the deal here? Like what we had, we, we actually negotiated this mechanism to, you know, resolve these kinds of disputes with China. They bought not they didn't meet the targets and we just let it go. Strange. <laughs> right. So just go back to the stock market. So you're still bearish on the entire market. You're still short the entire market, I should, I should say. But any view on Chinese banks and the financial sector versus the large cap tax? Because in a previous conversation we had, I asked, what do you think about shorting the Chinese banks? And you said almost instantly, I like it. But then you also said that you thought the Chinese tech stocks were uh, very cheap. So are you more bearish on the banks than you are the tech companies? Yeah. So I'm short the H shares, the Hong Kong listed China shares, which already trade at a 50% discount to the onshore shares which is crazy. Unfortunately, it's very, very tricky to trade these things because the basis between the offshore shares and the onshore shares, in some cases, the same exact companies is all over the place. It can be two or 3% on a day-to-day basis. So like sentiment is, this is just really like treacherous, treacherous stuff um, right now. The banks, uh, I don't do single name stuff, but you can do total return swaps or you can just short the single names. I love shorting the banks. You don't want to value pick in banks because in this kind of situation, the equities it's going to be wiped out at some point. It almost has to be. Whatever whatever equity held by offshore investors they can tap to fill this gaping hole in the Chinese national balance sheet will be tapped. So you know the, the central government will recap the banks at some point, but your equity is going to be going to be wiped out. And these are not market-based institutions by any stretch. They're, they're, so, so one of the interesting dynamics is they're being told to, to lend to the property developers, but they're having trouble executing the central plan this year because the bankers are saying, okay, we know Evergrande has $90 billion worth of apartments that they've sold, but not yet delivered to the households who bought them. And the $90 billion, they've evaporated it. So you want me, Bank XYZ, to lend to Evergrande to finish that project, but I'm lending into a black hole. That money's already gone. They can never pay me back. So it's, you know, the, the, the banks have to do national duty, but now they're being told to national duty, which is literally pissing money into a black hole. But they have to do that because the Chinese, government, Chinese Communist Party is saying, if you don't do this, you know, millions and millions of people who bought apartment buildings that don't exist yet, they're going to be protesting in the streets, which we saw a little bit of two, three years yeah, ago. Right? Developers are actually saying, I need my ass covered. I want some kind of guarantee that when this blows up, it's I'm not going to take the blame for making a bad loan here uh, because we all know it's a bad loan. And I honestly don't even know why the government insists on doing this through the banks. I don't know. I, I think it's just because the problem is too big. 
And so for those who say they, they have all this central government balance sheet they can use, the problem's too big because logically what they should have done is taken Country Garden and Evergrande and these other deadbeats and just roll them into some big, either an existing state-owned developer or build a new institution, roll them all up and say, this is now the state. Evergrande's evaporated the 90 billion that they got for these apartments, but we're going we're gonna to borrow the money as a big central entity and finish the apartments. And, you know, maybe the Evergrande operating group that does it still part of that, right? You don't even like, you, you just roll them into this big entity. And then, you know, the government is, is putting it on their own balance sheet. But they want, to, they want to do it through the banks. And the banks are like, yeah, this could blow me up. I mean, at the same time, there's uh, hundreds of these rural cooperative smaller banks, which are being rolled into medium-sized banks, which will have to be rolled into the big banks. Um, so, you know, this is really somewhat new. The, the, in my perspective, the level of bureaucratic foot dragging by these banks um, is, is really not something I've seen before. They're really pushing back. But the government will end up saying, you know, gun to your head, like, yeah, fine, we'll, we'll either give you the guarantee or we'll just make you do it. But the, they're, they're going to have to do it. But you are seeing a lack of policy traction. So the banks just avoid, avoid, avoid the banks at all costs. Um, and if you want to bottom fish in Chinese equities, it's tech. They're really cheap. And, um, you know, the the war against tech is over. Um, it wasn't really, it was just the, the company started to accrue a, a degree of political power that's untenable in that system. And they had to be rolled into the, the national planning fold. Um, but there's still some great businesses and they're going to, they're going to be throwing a lot of money at that sector. So if you want to be somewhere in China, you know, that would be it. Um, but I think the banks are ultimately zeros and on a sort of an index wide basis, um, this is an economy that's just going to grind to a halt. You said that the reason that the Chinese government can't or won't do stimulus is because it will weaken the currency. I presume that goes to either cutting interest rates further from the People's Bank of China or the central government borrowing money and basically giving it to people in terms of direct fiscal st stimulus or having some sort of uh, stimulus with, with companies or individuals, as was the case in, in the U.S., Map out exactly why you think that's so uh, undesirable for the Chinese Communist Party. You're saying it's because they can no longer keep the exchange rate, and and why is that even desirable? You know, if if I I have to either devalue my currency or send my country into a depression, the Bank of England in the 1930s, you know, they they said no, let's send my country into a depression. I think you know historians and economists agree that that was a huge mistake. Why why would China make that mistake again? It always comes down to which dimension they think is the least risky from the stability of the Chinese Communist Party. There's so much pressure built up in the currency now. Now, as an economist, you're absolutely right. And so I ran something called the Nexus Fund, an emerging sovereign group, which was a big China bear fund. Um, we, I, the, the day they did a 3% devaluation in 2015, I, I think we were up like 72%. It was, it was a little crazy. We had I, like the whole fund invested in one to two year dollar CNH calls primarily. Um, and, you know, I made an call as an economist that was, that was correct. The, the political economy ended up biting me in the ass because they decided so the dollar strengthened a lot, 2014, 2015, transmitted a tightening to China, 
they had a downturn pretty severe. And they said, we need to ease. You know, we want to be more market-based anyway. Let's try to get off this currency leak so we have room to ease policy and, and not get strangled to death by this strong dollar, which was absolutely the right thing to do. And they devalued 3% in the day. And then the next thing they knew, there was there were no dollars to be found. <laughs> they tried to intervene, spent, uh, I think the reserves came down by a trillion. There was at least another half a trillion of dollars that Chinese banks borrowed via FX forward and spent. It was at least a trillion and a half um, in like less than a year. So, so they were like shocked um, at, at the degree of the disequilibrium. So they, they, the only way they could control it was clamping down even harder than, than they were before. Um, so the whole thing boomeranged on them. And I look back now and I say, you know what? They should have sucked it up then. If they had sucked it up then, because my, my, my premise at the time was they can never get off the investment-led growth thing at a fixed currency because you'll go into a debt deflation spiral. And, you know, ultimately this is what happened. So they went back in 2016, repegged, and then they got some help because Ye Janet Yellen went to Shanghai in February 2015 and got the pants scared off her. It was like, oh, my God, we have, we've dotted to four hikes this year. But if we do that, this place is going to blow up. And they ended up not hiking at all. Sorry, Brian, ex explain how a rapidly appreciating dollar, so a, a depreciating Chinese yuan, negatively uh, impacts China because you, the, it, it's not the way that a lot of people listening to this might think of, you know, when the, the, the uh, Thai bot was, was devalued, that's, you know, there's so much dollar denominated debt. And then when the dollar strengthens, what they owe becomes greater. There is not a lot of dollar denominated debt in China, right? So where, where is the weakness? Is it, is it just that, well, it changes trade? Doesn't, doesn't trade get stimulated when the currency weakens? Yeah, this is completely different. There isn't, there isn't like a built-in doom loop. It's simply a question of it's been controlled at, not, at an increasingly non-market rate. If the market rate at which China has reflated sufficiently to make its balance sheet look stable is 12 to the dollar, then the market will be one way till we get to 12. And, and in fact, the history of these things, it goes, it goes to 15 and then settles at 12, right? They always overshoot. So I don't know, maybe, maybe the equilibrium of 10 and it goes to 12 and comes back. It's just, um, there's no, and again, 2015, 2016, they experimented with easing out of this box and it almost immediately blew up on them. So, so, so the market says like, you know, they could take it to nine and just repeg, but then they, they just have the same problem, which is, you know, they're, they're at an off market rate. So the only way to solve that problem is get to a market rate. And I don't, you know, nobody knows where that is. The problem is if it's 12 or 10 and you develop by 30 or 40%, I'll bring this back around to where you started with the question. That's going to have 20% inflation, maybe. It's it's a lesser developed economy than the U.S. The, the 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 monetary shock will transmit much more rapidly than ours did, and we just got a lesson. Like, can you believe how quickly the six trillion we printed, of <laughs> course, through the system here? It was wild. So in China, they could have twenty percent inflation overnight if they have a maxi devaluation. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have 
14% unemployment, you get 14% of the population is pretty pissed off. If you have 30% inflation, you have 100% of the population, many of which, a big proportion of which lives at like subsistence levels. So I think that's, that's mobs in the street. I think that's the problem. I think that's why they're stuck. And, and again, you know, they, they put my, my, my devaluation trade back in the bottle in 2015, 2016. So I'm, I'm still a little bitter about it, but they should have stuck with it then. They should have taken their medicine then. It's just a hell of a lot worse now. But the, but the dynamic's the same. It's just a, they're, they're, there's just a lot of pressure because they're trying to manage at a, at a, at a, at a rate that's way off market. Sorry to interrupt, just want to tell you about BlockWorks' upcoming crypto symposium in London, the Digital Asset Summit, which is running from March 18th to March 20th. Everyone in crypto is going to be there, not just the experts and policymakers, but the real industry leaders writing the checks. Over $800 billion in assets is going to be represented. Anyone who's anyone in crypto is going to be there. So if you're into crypto and you haven't bought your ticket yet, the time is now to get your ticket. I would not wait any longer. We've got some exciting guests on the macro side too. Julian Brigden, Michael Howell. And yes, I can confirm at last the rumors are true. Joseph Wang, the Fed guy himself, is going to be there too. I'll be hosting a panel with these macro heavyweights that you don't want to miss. So be there or be square. Click the link in the description and use code FG10 to get 10% off. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. So how do you think this plays out over the next few years? You, it sounds like you think that this stimulus and this weakening of the Chinese yuan, the renminbi, it will occur, but that there will be a long period of time before it occurs. First, there's going to be debt deflation before that solution comes. I would say they'll go the Japan path. Only, you know, Japan has a pretty robust industrial economy that could sort of grow their way out of it over two decades or whatever. If Xi Jinping, if, if this moving up the value chain proves to be look like really wasteful, they won't be able to do what Japan did. Um, but, but that's the path they're on. I think the currency break probably comes in response to either if the Fed really makes a mistake and we have like a mini 2007 type thing here, you know, where DXY rallies 15 or 20 percent, they may say, hey, we just can't handle this. Or I would imagine if Donald Trump gets reelected, there will be some discussions behind the scenes where he says, I'm, you know, if you don't do X, Y, Z, I'm going to tariff you by 30 percent or whatever the heck the number he decides on. And they say, well, we're not going to do that. But if you do 30 percent tariffs, we have to let our currency go and it might blow up the global financial system. I don't know. It might not. You'll see. So I, I, I honestly think that's the threat they were making in 2019. I have no way to prove that, but I, I think it, it just watching the way that dynamic played out, China, I believe, said, you know, we're not, we're not playing the game anymore. We're not giving you anything else um, and stop with the tariffs or, you know, this can go, this can go another direction. I, I'm not going to try to read Donald Trump's mind or try to try to decipher at this point what's bluster and what's what's policy. I can tell you, I have a friend who was in the Trump Treasury who, who says the the personnel that are around Trump this time around are more diehard America first types who are willing to sort of press those buttons more than maybe a Steve Mnuchin or a Gary Cohn were. Um, but, you know, who knows? We don't know how to staff up or any of this. But but I, I, I think, um, you know, there's either Trump or some kind of other geopolitical breach 
um, could cause a could cause a, a, a sharp devaluation of the RMB. As an economist, if you got me in a room with Xi Jinping, I would say, just try try nine and a half. See if that works. Repeg. Yeah, nine and a half on to the to the dollar. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't float. Um, and you know, so but you need a little reflation. Just do like try maybe nine and then do a firm peg and see see what happens. And you think they're worried about that because it would cause inflation, even though right now we have deflation in China. Yeah. So so just as you know, economists guesswork, what's nine? Twenty five percent, you know, thirty, twenty-eight percent or something, seven to nine. You know, maybe you get ten, twelve percent inflation for a few years. I don't know, maybe you do eight and a half, whatever. And you you find a level where you get some degree of inflation so that you can get nominal growth. Your real growth, instead of three nominal, goes to seven nominal. And the industrial profits revive a little bit and the debt load looks less obviously unsustainable. You maybe buy yourself some time that way, um, hope to get to the next Fed QE cycle and you know, Fed funds back at one or wherever we end up at the, whenever we have a next recession. Hope to get to that point in one piece. Um, you can't float the currency. It'll go to like infinity at this point. But you pick a level that where the inflation would be survivable and just like repeg, like firm and and hope it works. Um, I don't see any other the only other path out, and I think I think the mindset they're in now is just hope like hell that the Fed pivots. Hope like hell we fall into recession in the US, the Fed has to go back to one percent and the dollar comes off, and then seven point two. RMB against a weak dollar is a lot easier. You can have easier monetary policy than 7.2 against a strong dollar. Um, so I, I think that's where they're at now. Um, and if that doesn't come to pass in the next three to six months, maybe they try another experiment with 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 creating some room in the currency. But it's just it, it does seem to be an all or nothing prop for them now. What about the recapitalization of the banks by the state owned banks just based you know, that the government taking a hit? So that it's not private shareholders, and then the banks can just issue more equity, and the private sector owns more. What would that stop it from? That would it be an ideological aversion to that, or would it be the same concern about the currency? So, I, you know, the banks, the capital in Chinese banks is—it's sort of like fictional. They—they they, they try to adhere to these international regulations because they want to do international business. So, so they have like Cecil. Yeah, they have to maintain these capital standards, right? Yeah. But from a domestic standpoint, I, I, it's all already one balance sheet. You, you know, these these banks are the government. It's all the government. You talk to investors in China. I've had dozens and dozens and dozens tell me, you know, the way to make money in China is follow government signals. Like that's the system. That's the system. So, um, you know, a banking recap. If you take the bad debt. You know, if they acknowledge, which they'll have to eventually, that the assets on the asset side of the bank's aggregate balance sheet is not worth par, then they've got a hole to fill. And, you know, the Chinese government can just borrow, <laughs> they can borrow money to give it to the banks to fill that hole. But how do they borrow money? They sell bonds to the banks. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the, you know, they'll sell bonds. This, again, two thirds of the net government bond issuance is purchased by banks. So where does the government get the money to recapitalize the banks? The banks buy the bonds and create the, it's the households. So it's just, 
it's all a game of writing IOUs to the households to get them to work for nothing, right? You know, to get them to work. And, and instead of getting goods and services for their labors, they get IOUs that are increasingly sketchy looking. <laughs> I don't think we've ever seen anything like this. It, it's been the most fascinating thing I could ever have imagined stumbling into. Um, but I've been doing it long enough to know, like, the question everybody really wants to have answered is when? And I just I gave up on that one a while ago because we've just never seen anything like the, the degree of market manipulation that, that they'll undertake here. But again, it just this whole dynamic, when you, we walk through like we just did, recapitalizing the banks, it's like, what really are we talking about? The Chinese government is not sitting on a vault full of gold. I mean, they have reserves, but we don't know what those are anymore either. What about the U.S. Treasury, their FX reserves? Yeah, those are like the last piece of hard currency capital in the system. And, and, and that's why this currency episode is much different from 2015, 2016, because they tried to manage the exchange rate by selling reserves. And the market said, oh, you, our bid for those dollars is like, we'll take all of them. We'll take infinity. And, and so they realized they were on a path to like, it's just, they were just creating, they were just providing market liquidity and an off-market exchange rate. You know, they'd given everything. So they're not doing that this time. There's smoothing and they'll come in at the end of the session and some state-owned banks will cap it at a level or whatever. But it's like tens of billions here and there. It's not, you know, 200 billion a month type thing we saw at the worst level in 2015, 2016. Why? Because it's foolish policy. It doesn't work. Uh, it's sterilized intervention generally doesn't work, right? They Because they when they use reserves, they shrink the PBOC balance sheet and then they have to put that liquidity back in the system by lending more money to banks so they don't change the liquidity in the system. So it doesn't solve the problem. It's just a, it's a, a habit trail. It's a treadmill. Um, but also I think they just don't have the dollars. Um, you know, their, their reserves uh, compared to M2 are piddly, really not, not all that impressive. Um, so, you know, it, and this is the, this is, this is the dynamic, right? It's not a dynamic where, um, you know, there was a dynamic in 2015, a couple hundred billion of, um, you know, offshore debt didn't roll. Now, that problem's not as severe. It's just domestics don't want to hold these liabilities. They don't want to hold the M2. Um, and there's 50 trillion of that. And you can burn through whatever is in their reserves. Yeah, it's probably, you know, a little under a trillion if you want to say treasuries, agencies, some U.S. equities. Maybe, maybe that amount again as much in, in JGBs and European government bonds. They'll go through that like that. So it's not, it doesn't solve their problem in any way, shape, or form. And once that, once it's like they're, they're at the point with the reserves where you can't use them, because once you've used them, then the, the emperor is completely naked. Final question uh, that's a follow up about potential stimulus. Why can't China resume the Ponzi and say, yeah, lend to Evergrande, lend trillions and trillions and trillions, and let's make this real estate bubble bigger than it ever was. Because I would note, you know, what caused this crisis, as, as you, know, you you pointed out in, in your earlier presentation, was not the withdrawal of savings, not a run on the Chinese renminbi by households in China, but an intentional top-down decision from the Chinese Communist Party to stop lending to real estate firms and, you know, put lend more to uh, industrial and manufacturing firms? Why can't they put the genie back in the bottle? 
this is what you know investors have been arguing for the better part of 18 months. And my short answer is it would require Xi Jinping going to a podium and saying, you know what? I messed up. Houses actually are for speculation, not just living in. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, that's effectively what he would be saying. They, they, you know, you, you need, you would need to rekindle the speculation in what everybody knows. Like, so, so now, you know, we know they have like a hundred million apartments that are just going to go wasted. They would have to decide to go to 120 million in the next couple of years. And is that credible? I, I just, his personal credibility would be on the line. Sure. But I might point out, Brian, with, with COVID, I mean, they had a policy of basically don't leave your house at all. I'm, I'm exaggerating to, you know, they, there were some protests and in, in the fall, winter of 2022, they pretty much, the Chinese Communist Party changed that overnight. And, you know, the uh, politicians and, and the people who are writing the speeches, like they're, they're, they're pretty good. They can, they can invent the rhetoric to justify it, you know? Well, he was moving away from a stupid policy to a rational policy when we reopen the economy. This would be moving from the rational policy to an overtly irrational policy. Look, I don't put anything past Chinese investors. Like I, I've seen, you know, that, 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 that 2014 into 15 equity bubble was the craziest thing I've ever seen. So it's, it's a tricky dynamic. I mean, there's, you know, it's like game theory, right? If everybody thinks everybody else is going to do it, maybe they go do it again. I, I, I don't know. I don't think it's sustainable. I, I, I think it, it would be openly acknowledging that they're pumping credit at a very, very high rate to do something that they themselves had stopped because it was unsustainable. And, and just some numbers. So credit grows at 10% in China. If it goes below that, they die. I mean, that, that, that's like the empirical fact, which is crazy. It's been 10% plus for 25 years. And 10%, it's like $5 trillion. So they have to increase credit by $5 trillion just to survive this year. To do what you're talking about, it would have to be closer to $10 trillion. So, so it would be like saying... To get me through the next 18 to 24 months, here, we're going to take $10 trillion and we're going to light a torch to it. Have fun. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that ship has sailed. Brian, it's been great to get you here. Could you just quickly summarize your views for the audience? Sure. So I think the, uh, you know, the, the, the key highlights are that China's investment-led growth model is gone. It's not coming back. They think they have something to replace it with. I'm skeptical. Uh, they're in a debt deflation, in the grips of a debt deflation that can't be fixed without a reflationary devaluation. And this is all in the early innings. This is a story that I think is going to play out over the next, you know, several years. So, you know, we talked about the the lead between property sales and construction activity, which is just now rolling over. So all of the problems we saw in 2023 are going to get worse. Um, even I'm shocked at what we're seeing for property sales in January. We're seeing figures down 30, 40, 50%. Um, just for some numbers, the annual real estate sales in China have already fallen from 18 trillion RMB a year to 10. So we're almost almost down 50%. By the time the next few months numbers come down, we might be on a 12-month rolling sum of sales down 50% off the peak. Um, 
estimates of the total value of Chinese residential real estate range from 70 to 120 trillion. Um, and you're going to cut that in half. So I, I think this is going to be wealth destruction on a scale that we've, we've never seen before. So, uh, you know, this is going to be wrenching, wrenching, wrenching times for the, for the Chinese economy, for the Chinese consumer. Uh, Xi Jinping himself has only signaled it's going to get worse before it gets better. And, you know, all this is, is an economic outlook before we're even overlaying the possibility of something going wrong for China from a geopolitical perspective, um, which, is, which is a pretty non-negligible negligible, uh, probability as well, which would make, I think, these economic uh, difficulties almost untenable. Thank you, Brian. People can find you on Twitter at Brian Go Bosox and uh, your, your website, macrolens.com. Final question, Brian, I'm surprised we didn't touch on it yet, is what are the implications of a Chinese economic slowdown on the rest of the world? If the U.S. had you know, entered a recession for China, for Germany, for exported-oriented uh, economies, it would be a lot of trouble. And definitely China and Germany weren't helped by the you know, mini slowdown, especially in uh, goods demand in, in the first half of, of 2022. But is it the same of China? If there's a Chinese re recession or even a Chinese depression, how is that going to impact the rest of the world's economies? Yeah, it has direct effects on commodity exporting nations, Australia, Brazil, which that story is in the early innings as well. I mean, iron ore had a decent year last year because they're still running the steel plants, but they're going to end up dumping that steel on global markets because, you know, the, the rate at which they're using it is going to continue to decline. So, I mean, that's a whole nother part of the story, Chinese demand for commodities that hasn't really even unfolded yet. Um, but that will come and that will that will affect the uh, commodity exporting nations could have broader ramifications for emerging markets. So that was the transmission mechanism in 2015, 2016. Sharp devaluation from China, fears of a maxi devaluation that would, you know, sort of bring back the specter of 1998 cause, you know, large devaluations, competitive devals across Asia. And then you had like a global emerging market crisis, which might cause some big bank or other entity to have some kind of financial loss that would cause a problem because they're not they're not really meddling with the currency yet so because the currency break is for now off the table that financial transmission mechanism we saw in 2015 2016 is absent to this point um, and then in terms of uh, you know direct growth effects again if you're not one of these commodity producers it doesn't really matter because China, really doesn't buy much from the rest of the world. They buy some Nike sneakers and some Apple iPhones that are made in China. So the, the profits of those companies, we've seen it with Apple recently, right? Um, although there are some competitive factors there too, but the profits of these companies uh, will be under some stress if China is a big part of their profit picture. But it's not going to affect employment in the rest of the world because the rest of the world, again, outside of commodities, um, doesn't expend a lot of labor making goods for Chinese consumption. China imports oil and semiconductors, basically. And the semiconductors, for the most part, go into boxes and get exported as completed products. So um, you know, the, the direct economic effects outside commodities are minimal. Uh, the, the, the financial effects really only come about when we start seeing the risk of a maxi devaluation, which if you look at... Um, you know, option volatilities on the uh, RMB, they're at multi-year lows. So the, the market's just not really worried about that right now.
Hmm. So that that is a trade you, you like being, you know, long the dollar, maybe very calls on the, the dollar versus the, the Chinese RMB. Um, so, Brian, t- t- last question. Tell us about your work at Macro Lens. I know you've got a weekly research note. Is that focused exclusively on China or only mostly on China? It's sort of a, a unique mix. I do, you know, U.S. macro, um, which was sort of where I started. And, and you know, before I got into this China craziness about a dozen years ago um, and a very intensive China focus. And, you know, when I was at uh, Emerging Sovereign Group, we, we uh, named this sort of China-focused bear fund, the Nexus Fund, um, because of the contention that this interplay between the U.S. and China was sort of at the nexus of global risk on, risk, risk off. Um, because China has a big bubble, it's now bursting, that's linked to the U.S. via the exchange rate. Fed policy gets transmitted to China, and it's like this huge amplifier of Fed policy, right? It's why Janet Yellen couldn't hike four times in 2016, because I thought four times was only a little bit, but oh my God, if it blows up China, it's it's a big tightening. So so this this currency peg, increasingly tenuous currency peg, and this bubble in China is is a real amplifier of Fed policy. Which you know, for me, it would be entertaining if if we got a big dollar rally and the Fed made an over tightening mistake and we had a risk off episode because you know those fireworks are, are really right, right in my wheelhouse. Well, it definitely already is interesting. It'll be interesting to see uh, how how things playing out play out. Brian, thanks again for for coming on, and thanks everyone for watching. Thanks for having me. Thanks for watching. Remember to check out vanek.com/hodlfg to learn more about the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. A reminder that Forward Guidance episodes are available on all podcast apps and on Twitter, where I post them regularly, at JackFarley96. Thanks again. Until next time.